You can be seated. So over the next three weeks, we are going to dive into this parable, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. I say that because it's not just about one son, it's about two sons and about a father. Uh, here in Luke chapter 15, probably the most well-known parable that Jesus ever told. And its popularity is well-deserved because this story brings us to the heart of the gospel of Jesus, to the heart of the grace and character of God. And, uh, and it's something that I would have no apologies revisiting on an annual basis, actually, as a community. Um, I think we, we see greater debts when we come back to this story again and again. So I look forward to spending a few weeks together in this section with you. Uh, we learn why Jesus told the parable in verses 1 and 2. And if you'd like to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 15, there are Bibles in the pews. You can open up there and uh, follow along with me. But in verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. To these leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus' table fellowship was with the very people that God did not accept and should not accept. And that was causing them a lot of dissonance. This, to them, was a scandal. And it wasn't the only time that in the Gospels they complain about this dimension of Jesus' ministry. Actually, this happens in Mark chapter 2, near the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Mark. And, um, and Jesus' response there is quite well known. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus understands that none of us will ever grasp the reality of God's grace and prioritize it and build and anchor our lives on it as we are to do unless we see our need for it, our genuine need. It's not the healthy that he came, but it's those who are sick that he came to rescue. We'll never truly celebrate the radical love of God until we see the degree to which we have rebelled from that love, and yet he loves us still. And when we do see that, and only then, our hearts will be changed and new life will flow over in us. Then we will love, then we will forgive, then we will celebrate, then we will feast, and we will truly be his people. So this story that Jesus tells is about that basic reality and insight. It's an invitation to us to consider our own lostness and rebellion, juxtaposed with the pursuing and costly love of God. It's an invitation to get to the heart of the good news of the Christian gospel. It's an invitation to come alive to all of us, whether you've been walking with Jesus for most of your life or you're just beginning to get curious about him or perhaps you're still very skeptical of who he is and you've somehow ended up here this morning. In this story that Jesus tells, he reveals to us two kinds of rebellion. There's the rebellion of the younger son, which is a more explicit and obvious rebellion. And then there's the rebellion of the elder brother who stays near. Both brothers are lost and their respective states of being lost, though they look quite different on the surface, are actually two branches growing from the same tree. Today, in our time, we'll focus on the rebellion of the younger brother, his particular struggles. This features in what I would call Act 1 of the parable from verses 11 to 24. And next week, we'll look more closely at the more subtle 
rebellion of the elder brother that comes to the light in Act 2 of this story. And in the final week, Lord willing, we'll take a closer look at the God who is revealed through this story and the two that precede it, the story about the lost sheep and about the lost coin because they go together. And I trust in doing so we'll be deeply encouraged. So today, this morning, we're going to look at the rebellion of the younger brother and we'll see three phases of his life in this story. First, the act of rebellion or the nature of sin. Second, the result of his rebellion or the fruit of sin. And third, the partial but misguided return, what I would call the scheming of sin. And then we'll close by looking at the father's response. So first, the act of rebellion. The first details in the story in verses 12 and 13 show us the younger brother's open and egregious rebellion. And the younger of them said to his father, verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Not many days later, continuing verse 13, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. By Jewish law, a father would divide his estate among his sons. But this would happen at the father's initiative. For the younger son to initiate his request that the father give him his share was basically saying that he was impatient for his father's death. It was a kind of death wish toward his father. Father, I don't care about you. Give me what is mine, what I really want. And it gets worse, as we saw in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. I love the work of Ken Bailey. He's a New Testament scholar. He was born in 1930, died in 2016. But for five decades, he spent his life really digging in and living in the Middle East and coming to understand the culture of Middle Eastern village life. And I'm drawing on some of his insights as we engage this parable. But to, to gather up all that the younger brother had means that he had to liquidate all of his father's assets in a culture where one's livelihood and identity were closely associated with land and one's family, the selling off of land would have, a, would, would have driven a dagger into the heart of the father, into the brother, and into the whole family. This younger brother was significantly altering the lives and the futures of his entire family. For them, this would have been a staggering loss. Not only that, this wasn't happening in isolation. It was happening in front of a Middle Eastern village. And in, middle, in villages in the Middle East, they would have been very aware of what was going on in one another's lives. They knew each other's business. And in hastily liquidating his portion of the inheritance, the son was bringing great shame upon the family in the village, humiliating them before others. The son goes on with his plans, though, uninhibited. And it says he took a journey. And that word for took a journey has the literal sense of leaving his own. It's the only time that the word is used in Luke's gospel. By his actions, the younger brother is cutting himself off from his father and his family. In Middle Eastern village life, the family would have been his social security, his insurance, his old age, old age pension, his assurance of marriage, his physical and emotional well-being. And he trades all of this so that he can strike out on his own to a far country, taking the passing in place of the permanent. 
Well, we need to ask why. Why would he do this? And here we're going to get to some of the nature of sin. Why make such a move? He was actually entitled to his share in the father's estate. He was entitled to his place in the, in the household. And that would have been a very secure place to, to be. But he throws all of that away. Why? And here we begin to understand how sin works. The first thing is it's a, it's a desire or a lust for control. The son had a part to play, as I said. But when he asks his father for a share early, he plays his hand. I want control. I want to be my own boss. I want to call the shots. I'm tired of your influence and your authority. I'm tired of blending in. I want to be on my own. So a lust for control. And then under that, there is a lie, a fundamental lie that sin communicates to us. And it's the lie that says, look, I know best. I know what's best in my life. I know how to attain the good life. With my own two eyes, I can see more clearly. I know what's, what I really need. And honestly, who of us doesn't experience the power of this lie even in the last 24 hours? We experience this all the time. The 17th century philosopher and, and mathematician Blaise Pascal said this, man is quite capable of the most extravagant opinions. Since he is capable of believing that he is not naturally and inevitably weak, but is, on the contrary, naturally wise. We're not naturally wise, but we think we are. And that's the way that sin works, as we think we know best. And then underneath that, as we keep unpacking the reality of sin, is this I know best reality is actually indicating a mistrust of God. God, you don't know what's best for my life. You don't have my best in mind. It's saying that, God, you're not a life giver, but rather at best you are irrelevant. I need to make my own decisions. Or at worst, you're some kind of hard-driving schoolmaster who's so uptight and never wants his kids to have a good time. One of those two options. This has always been in the heart of the reality of sin. Way back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent gets Adam and Eve to transgress the word of God by saying, look, did God really say? You know, if you eat of this tree, you'll become like God. You know best. God shouldn't be trusted. And so the son comes and asks for his portion of the inheritance. He's so lost before he even asks the question. He's lost in his heart. He's failed to understand that life is actually with the Father. And in his lostness, he actually is willing to risk everything so that he can take control and strike out on his own path. We know this reality well, don't we? We take those bits of creation with which we have been entrusted and we go our own way. We say, thank you very much, God, but I have a better plan and I'm going to go and walk in it. That's what the younger brother did. Before moving to the second point, I just, let's just observe what the father did. And it's there at the end of verse 12. And it's actually shocking. In a Middle Eastern context, the father would have been expected with this kind of request to rebuke the son and to reject his request. But what does this father in the story do at the end of verse 12? And he divided his property between them. Instead of rejecting his request in his abundant and reckless love, the father grants the son's request. And here's the point is this. God will not hold us hostage. He locks no doors. 
With God, there are no forced marches. You are free to turn. You are free to insult. You are free to walk or run away. Let me speak to the teenagers in the room for a moment. We want you here, your parents and your pastors, and for at least two of you, those are one and the same person, long for you. We long for you to see and to experience the fullness of life in God, the beauty, the riches, the relief, the rest, the reward of life as it is meant to be lived. And that we know can be found only in God and through his son, Jesus, by the spirit. And yet try as we might to hold you, because we do. We will try with all of our, what I hope is spirit-inspired guidelines and counsel and protections and boundaries that we put in your lives. We know that we cannot hold you because God will not hold you against your will. He will give you your share. He's given you so much already. And he wants most of all your love. And your love cannot be extorted. It can't be squeezed out of you. It can only be freely given. You must decide to give it in response to his pursuing love. So the younger brother takes this path of outward rebellion and shows us a bit of the nature of sin. But what was the result of his rebellion? And here we get to the fruit of sin. Because what had promised him abundant life gave him anything but that. He spent it all, as we read in verse 13, at the end of verse 13, Uh, There he squandered his property in reckless living. And then verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. This departure from home, from the God of life, always leads to emptiness. Ten times out of ten. It always leads this way. We were... We had a shorter trip to Colorado this summer. We took a, um, while we were there, we, we took a ducky trip down the Arkansas River. Duckies are inflatable kayaks that kind of operate like miniature rafts. And we had four of them, two doubles and two singles, and our family was in them. And they all, they all seemed at the beginning of the trip to pump up just fine. But having been on the river for about 30 or 40 minutes, we realized that the ducky that Savannah was paddling was showing signs of losing air. One of the two main tubes was losing air. There was a small leak. And in one of those tubes, and that made paddling a a bit more difficult along the way. And if our trip had been longer than just a couple of hours, she would have ended up certainly in the water, most of us in the water at some point anyway, but that's a different, for a different reason. But she would have ended up in the water. And that gives us a picture of this path away from God. It it may start out looking just fine, all pumped up and exciting, but our reckless self-guided living will ultimately lead to this leaky, empty, life. For the younger brother, that came over time as he squandered his resources and then famine struck. It happens in so many varieties of ways. Jonathan Charks is uh, a writer, a sports writer on the NBA for The Ringer. He's also a a Christian man. And uh, his testimony was published in CT, Christianity Today, in, in 2018. And He actually starts by by saying this. He says, I spent my first 25 years living by my own standards. I thought I could do whatever I wanted. I wanted, as long as I wasn't hurting anyone, I partied, drank, did drugs, and looked for fulfillment in other people. And then he says this, none of it made me happy. I wasn't content no matter what I did. It leads 
to emptiness. Jesus speaks about this really clearly when he meets that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he says, you give me a drink, and, and then he explains to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Go out your own way and try to find your own water. It, it, it may satisfy you for just a moment, but eventually it will run dry. You'll be thirsty again. The prophet Jeremiah says this about the people of God in Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. This is the voice of Yahweh speaking through him. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're leaky, like Savannah's ducky that day on the river. And they'll end up being empty. However unexciting or restrictive life with God may seem to some of us, I want you to know that the precise opposite is true. Do you want to be satisfied, free, alive, having joy, creative, living a life of meaning and purpose and adventure? The go-your-own-way approach just won't deliver. It never does. And yet, even though we come to realize that, look what this younger brother does. Instead of returning home, the shame and humiliation that await him there are just too much. He makes another plan of his own. And this is a bit like us often in our rebellion. Having run our own way for a while, we may feel that sense of emptiness, but we're not willing to come home. We turn to another plan of our own making, however humiliating it might be. So what does he do? He takes up work among the pigs. And it's hard for us to really grasp just how low this would have been for him as a Jewish man of means in that day. The pigs were the unclean animals. That was the place you would never go. And that's where he ends up, longing to fill himself with the pods that the pigs would eat. And then we get this comment at the end of verse 16 about his state. He was longing to be fed with the pigs that the pods ate. And then this, and no one gave him anything. You couldn't get much lower than this. Could we ask for any more powerful of a picture of the impotence of striking out on our own way and what it promises? It just never delivers. There's this moment in Dostoevsky's novel that he published in over 1879 and 1880, The Brothers Karamazov. It's right before the, the most well-known chapter, which is The Grand Inquisitor. In the chapter before that, it's called Rebellion. Ivan and his brother Alyosha are, are engaged in a conversation, and Ivan is struggling with the suffering in the world and just saying, look, I don't want anything to do with God because of this. And Alyosha accuses him of rebellion and says that's rebellion. And there's this brilliant throwaway line where Ivan says in response, one cannot live by rebellion. And I want to live. One cannot live by rebellion. We get that so clearly communicated here in the picture of the younger brother. If you are contemplating leaving home, if you're contemplating taking control, if you already are calling the shots, please remember that it always leads to emptiness. You are free to go, but God longs for you to have so much more. Third, we see the misguided plan. And here we see a bit of the scheming of sin. We've already seen it a little in the plan that he devised to go and work for himself among the pigs. 
something changes in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, most of us tend to think coming to himself means repentance, but I, that's probably going too far. We do see a start in the right direction here from the, the younger brother and seeing that the father has what he needs, but the younger brother at this point is not driven by love, but by hunger. That is, this is not yet repentance, but it is likely a belly-driven plan, like what Paul describes in Philippians 3, their God is their belly. He's just starving and he needs something to eat and he's still holding on to control. He knows that he's damaged goods. He's not good enough to be the son of his father, but he goes to his father with a plan, setting the terms for their renewed relationship. I will be one of your hired servants. That's his plan in verse 19, so that he can eat and possibly even pay back the debts to his father over time. Further, by taking that plan, he would avoid having to deal with and confront and be reconciled to his brother since he would be independent of the father's household, all of which is now left to his brother and his brother's rightful possession. So even in his desperation and loneliness, he's still in control. And, and we know this kind of reasoning in our own lives as well. After uh, a life or a period or even a moment of younger brother rebellion, we will say to God, look, God, I know I've made a mess of my life, but I can do better and I can make it up to you in this way, this way, and this way. And when I do, you'll see that I'm really worthy and I'm not as bad as I've shown myself to be in these past few months or few years. Just give me one more chance. We set the terms. It's coming to God with a plan. We're still trying to earn our place in his life and, and household. Even if in our shame, there, there's still this pride that lurks deep in our hearts, devising plans and setting terms. And that's what the younger brother is doing. He says, look, I'll arise and go to my father. And he goes. But even at the edge of the village as he's arriving, the younger brother is still lost. And if we've made arrangements like that with God, we are likely still lost too. It brings us to the key moment of this first act of this story and our conclusion today. How will the father respond to this rebel's return? Because it's in the father's response that the power of sin that we see so deeply at work in the younger brother's life and in our own hearts as well, that that power of sin and, and this, this response alone can be broken cut off at the pass. Having been grieved and shamed and dishonored before the family and before the entire village, what will be the outcome of this meeting? Surely the whole village is abuzz with the sun off in the distance coming back. From our perspective, and no doubt from the perspective of Jesus's original hearers, the Pharisees and the scribes, there is no hope for the son. It is so clear what the father must do. All, of the, all that the son has done is just too much. And yet, shockingly, for all of us who encounter the story, when Jesus originally told it to the present day, the father welcomes the son home. He sees the son a long way off in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
In the Middle East, men of that stature do not run. To do so, they must gird up their loins, and that would be to expose their legs, which would have been humiliating in that culture. But the father does so. He runs off to meet him, and when he gets there, he embraces him. He throws his hands upon his neck, and he kisses him, a sign of reconciliation and forgiveness offered to him at the edge of the town, in front of all of the watching villagers, and in front of all of his hired servants. The father demonstrates his reconciliation to and forgiveness of the son with an embrace and a kiss. And the son then makes his speech, but he doesn't finish. Did you notice? The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, verse 21, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. He drops the bit about the part of being made a hired servant. And this is deeply significant. An insight from the 11th century Arabic commentator, the most well-known Arabic commentator in that time, is so fascinating. Ken Bailey brings this forth, but that Arabic commentator wrote this about this moment. He says, we say that he did not say it because of what he saw of his father's love. We say that he did not say it, make me one of your hired servants, because of what he saw of his father's love love he didn't go on to set the terms in the father's loving response to the younger son and his rebellion the younger son now instead of setting terms for the relationship places himself entirely in the hands of his father his gracious father his plans are abandoned for the father's plans and the father's plan is overwhelming for all of us it is this plan It is to have him, this rebel, back as a son. As a son and not a hired servant or anything else. So the father says, put the best robe upon him. That would be the father's own robe in that culture. Put a ring on his fingers, put shoes upon his feet, and throw a gigantic party. Kill the fattened calf. And invite the entire village. It would have taken at least 100 people or probably more to consume what the father had killed in the fattened calf. And they would have been invited into the celebration. The father's plan was to invite and embrace the the rebellious son. And why? What does he say in those wonderful words in verse 24 as this act of the story closes? For this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Note this. It is the father's suffering in the early part of the story. He is unwilling to disown his son, but absorbs the pain that opens the door to reconciliation at this point in the story. It is the father's shaming of himself by running through the town that enacts the reconciliation that brings about the return of his son, not as a servant, but as a son. This is a picture. The father in this story is a picture of redemptive suffering of taking pain and shame and humiliation upon himself for the sake of his son who pushed it all upon him. And we get the perfect picture of the redemptive love and suffering of God at the cross of Calvary in Jesus himself as he suffers on our behalf, thrown outside the city gates as one to be rejected and despised. He takes upon himself all that we deserved in order that he might give us life and receive us into his family. The father loves to take dead things and make them alive. 
Rebellion is met with reconciling love. Mistrust is met with embrace. And that embrace is made with the full knowledge of what we have done. He knows all and he embraces all. His radical love for the rebellious son was not somehow in ignorance of the son's actions. It was with those actions in full display, high def color display. He saw them all and yet he embraces and kisses him still. Which is to say that for you and for me, when we are embraced by the Father's love, when we are embraced by the love of God, all that we have done about which we are ashamed, we need no longer walk on tiptoes about. It is in the light and we are loved still by this God. There is tremendous freedom in the embrace of the grace of God. Shame is transferred from the guilty to the innocent. Famine is transformed into feasting. Humiliation is replaced with honor. We have a robe, the best robe, a ring, a ring from the Father, and shoes on our feet. And we have a place at the table, not as hired servants, but as forgiven and reconciled sons and daughters. We are not worthy of this response. This is grace, the grace of God. We don't need to wait by the way, to receive this. The road home is an open highway for younger brothers. They were flocking to Jesus during his earthly ministry. We need to know that God loves us without condition, that no sinful path is too insulting and too grave to put us out of the reach of his forgiving and reconciling love and forgiveness. So many times in conversations with people over the years, I've heard them say, could God ever love me because of what I have done or what I am doing? And the answer is always, of course he could, because every single one of us has done those things or has done things about which we are unworthy for his love. And yet God will not want us back as anything but as a redeemed and forgiven son or daughter. That is his amazing grace. It is to embrace. Remember Jesus' words in John 13, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He will have you back as a son, not as a servant. I mentioned Jonathan Sharks. He goes on in his testimony to describe how God met him at an EDM show in Dallas when he was high on ecstasy and dancing on the dance floor with the DJ and all of the others who were high on drugs. And he describes how God met him like a surge of lightning and he saw that what he was engaged in in that moment was just idolatry, just good old fashioned pagan idolatry. And he knew in that moment that God was real. And so he came home and he called the Christian couple that he knew and had had dinner with years before and asked them where there would be churches in that city in which he lived. And he began to go to church and found life in Jesus. And then he describes nine months later, he was praying for a friend who had just broken up with a girl. And he writes this, he said, I never understood the importance of identity before becoming a Christian. I had spent my life searching for meaning in a million different places. School, career, girls, popularity, money. I got my identity through what other people thought of me, which made me incredibly insecure. I was haunted by a fear that I was never good enough. I struggled with anxiety and depression and used drugs and alcohol as an escape. And then nine months into his Christian journey, he was praying for this friend and he was telling this friend that his identity didn't come from what this woman thought about him. And he says, all of a sudden I realized I was talking to myself. It didn't matter whether I had a successful career, a wife and kids, or a lot of money. None of those things defined who I was. 
My identity came from Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. From the redemptive suffering love of God, we know who we are. And because we know who we are, because of his grace and love, that need for control, that sense that I know what is best, that mistrust of God can be relinquished and let go. Sin can be overcome and can only be overcome by the grace of God in Christ. As we walk in that grace, our hearts are changed and transformed. It is indeed an amazing grace. And it enables us to yield control. We are the rebellious ones clothed in the best robe, clothed in Christ, with a ring on our finger, feasting at the Father's table. Every Sunday when you walk in here, that's who you are. You're a man or woman who has been redeemed by the most amazing grace the world will ever know. May God change our hearts by his grace and may he transform our community by his grace as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we say we were once lost, we were once blind, but we've now been found and we now see. For anyone, Lord, here who's running away, I pray that you would call them home. For those who are tempted to run away, I pray the temptation would be silenced in the face of your incredible and amazing love and grace. We worship you. We adore you. Above all, we thank you. Thank you for making us sons and daughters. In Jesus' name. Amen.